Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers, an artist interview podcast produced in association with Beats Per Minute. I'm your host, Jeremy J. Fassett. On this episode, we get to meet electronic music duo Matmus. Matmus is made up of Drew Daniel and Martin Schmidt. And over the past 20 years or so, they've put out some of the strangest and most beguiling, bewildering electronic music. Often their albums are born out of a certain intriguing concept, such as their latest album, The Consuming Flame, from the fall of 2020, which invited 99 collaborators to all contribute their own individual pieces, all at 99 beats per minute. In this chat, Matmos and I talk about their unique way of composing their albums, their similarly unique way of conducting a live show, and what a live show even looks like for them these days. We also talk about some of their collaborations, such as their high-profile collaboration with Bjork on her album Vespertine, that occurred quite early in their career. It was such a pleasure to talk with Drew and Martin. They are hilarious, candid, and have a lot of interesting things to say about music as well as what they do. So thank you for listening, and please enjoy. This is me meeting Matmus. <laughs> I have the high gayer sounding voice. Okay, and which one and which one is that? That's Drew. And I okay. sound very masculine. I'm Martin. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, cool. I well, sort now of laugh like Ernie and I give really long, pretentious uh answers. Now we both give pretentious answers. <laughs> Martin's are shorter. That's how you Well know. uh yeah, I mean Martin's emails were, you know, real straight into the point. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, I'm pretentious and I'm a professor and you know I I, I waste people's time for a living. I'm an English teacher, so I probably am right there with you. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Sorry Hi. we blew it and missed a previous engagement. I, I, I hear that that happened and I want to apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Um, it happens. Not a big deal. Um, but how are you guys today? How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I have... I have been eating, drinking, and sleeping live stream concerts. Uh, we, my friend Jeff Carey, who is a sort of computer noise uh, artist guy, very really accomplished fella, though not famous or anything, um, should be, uh, was like Martin. I'm I'm losing my mind that we can't go on tour. I want to see if I can put together like a live streaming tour. And I was like, oh, okay, do, do you want to play? And I was like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll play, we'll play those. He came back to me a couple of days later and was like, okay, I've booked 19 shows. <laughs> and I was like, no. You were expecting like three. <laughs> yes. Uh and his point was like, they're hosted by organizations in different time zones. So if you do a Hong Kong stream at a time convenient for people in Hong Kong, you're getting totally different people than a stream hosted in Oakland and so on. So in fact, it might sound like arrogant, like why are you doing so many of these? But when you think about the like micro communities that attach to different streaming concerts, 
there is a sort of DIY scale to it, you know, like 25, 30, 50 weirdos in one scene are going to watch one of these and, and they'll be different from the ones on the other one. Mm-hmm. So that's the thinking. So have you guys been doing those or have those not started yet? They have not started yet. We did okay. one, um, uh, the fellow who invented Bandcamp oh, wow. is, is a sort of friend of ours. Uh, and when they, so they've, they're developing a sort of live online concert system that will be part of Bandcamp. And he called us up and said, hey, do you want to do one of the beta test concerts for this? Hmm. And we said yes. And we've done that. And it was super cool. Uh, Was that the first show you guys have done in a while? No, we've we've done a couple of these dumb things. (laughs) We did the the sort of, I don't know, I don't know how. I don't know who you are, what you do, but um, so I'll just go ahead and introduce (laughs) things. Uh, Do you know what ESS is in Chicago? No. It's called the Experimental Sound Studios. And in the, historically, they sort of uh, co-present sound-oriented art events in Chicago. Okay. But they don't run a venue and they don't have a space. They're just helper people. Uh, but when this pandemic thing started, they became the sort of like national clearinghouse of experimental music online and have really like run with this flag and have done a really uh, great job with it. Um, and you, we and you terribly, participated? We did. We, we played one of those and we were kind of bad. It yeah, was we, our <laughs> first uh, thing. We were not terribly impressed with what we put put out there that first time. So there was kind of a, a learning on the job, humbling experience of like, what even is a concert? What is presence? What does it mean to be available to an audience? Um, and also just the sheer material and practical question of, okay, you're a band that makes records in the studio, but now you've got to become a TV producer. Mm. And you've got to think about lighting, cameras, who's in the shot, what's in the shot, what is distracting, where's the focus supposed to be? So Martin and I have been arguing back and forth about what we want to include and how we want to present things. And even just the debate about synchronous versus asynchronous content like does it make more sense to be live because that's truly being available or is it better to make something ahead of time that you know is worth somebody's time and then while it's live you're in the chat talking to people about what you're sharing with them and answering mm. their questions you know things that you would never do in a live performance you don't do a Q&A during the concert <laughs> you might do it afterwards if you're in an academic setting so it's just been really cool and kind of weird and disorienting to like suddenly be forced to become your own TV production studio. And thank God, like Martin knows his way around a camera and video editing software. Um, I don't at all. So I just sort of free improvise and share my latest like Ableton macrame doodles. And yeah, it's just an open question of like, well, what does it mean to be uh, to be live in this era? And yeah, well, what, that kind of makes me... Yeah, and that kind of makes me wonder, though, is there even such a thing as a typical Matmos concert? 
<laughs> I mean, not really. In the, yeah. in, a, in a live, you know, when we go, you know, we tour like a, you know, like a stupid bar band. <laughs> uh, and that is the context by and large, you know, like occasionally we're lucky and we get to play in art galleries or, you know, unusual spaces. But by and large, we're a certain, you know, the, the cursed question of the touring band is you go into the club, whatever it is, and the sound, the wearisome sound person looks at you and goes, what are you? <laughs> and when you're dragging a literal washing machine in the front door, you know, the question yeah. becomes acute. I mean, we're used to touring albums where a tour is about presenting the most recent record in a way that's compelling, whether it's plastic objects or telepathy experiments or washing machines, it's very bottlenecked by that album. In the wake of something like The Consuming Flame, because that's such a socially plural record that's like 99 different people's stuff, what does it even mean to play it live? And because it's a collage and an assemblage, it's also like pretty open season, like what does that mean? So for Martin and I, the solution has just been to stick to the idea of 99 BPM as a linking strategy. And so when we've been creating these stream concerts, we've done now, I guess, six, like we've done two, uh, and we come that are coming. And the link throughout all of them is purely that idea, that concept of 99 BPM as a relay race and everybody throws stuff into the pot and you keep flowing. And the only thing that's constant is a tempo. We've tried to observe that more or less in all of these streaming concerts, simply because it, it's the only way that feels valid to present this music. And you know, I don't yeah. know if it's the only way, but that's what we've been that's doing. That's what we've been doing. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, it's honestly super fun. Like I was just saying earlier today, like we've probably made a, a fourth hour of 99 BPM material just for these streaming concerts. That's like a further funky distillation. You know, when you serve something and you got leftovers and then you add a bunch of spices and oil and refry it and a few new ingredients and mm. it keeps getting weirder. That's kind of what's happening to the, our album. So you're not really quite like, playing the songs from the album you're kind of like extending off of the album oh, yeah oh lord no yeah i mean we <laughs> neither i mean do, have you been enjoying this since literally all you asked us was what are you doing today <laughs> and we yeah, already no, that's this is how it works it's cool with me all right cool um good uh yeah so so it's important to note about us that we're not musicians in any traditional sense, mm -hmm. like neither of us uh, were trained, you know, I had piano lessons in, you know, fifth and sixth grade, but this idea of, of that the song is the structure that is magic and you repeat that structure uh, you know, like normal bands <laughs> playing songs is just not how we we come at it because not for some pretentious reason, but because we're very bad at that. There are solutions to that problem, which we choose not to in, uh, indulge in. Namely, yeah, you, we're working with computers. We could just play the files on the computer and you know nod our heads enthusiastically 
as if we were making music, but it it comes out so flawlessly. I, I don't know. What would be the point? What would be the point? And w- w- so from the beginning, we've just chosen not to do that, but to sort of like include elements from the thing that was on the record that was cobbled together more like a, a collage or a... a, a Exquisite corpse. Pictures made out of little stones. Rebus. Mosaic. Mosaics. Mm. Like we kind of make songs like like mosaics. We aren't drawers where we sort of piece together these things. I like that we just played a kind of scattergories where it was like mosaic, rebus, uh, (laughs) (laughs) exquisite corpse. (laughs) Basically everything that is like that that we can think of. I mean, um, but not a but not a drawing. Like to give you no. an example, we we wanted to play at 99 BPM, but Martin thought, oh, we're in the basement and the washing machine is right here. Let's do a version of some of Ultimate Care 2. And I'll drum on the washing machine and I'll play the washing machine. And then you construct new rhythms at 99 BPM. So it's a little bit Ultimate Care 2 and it's a little bit Consuming Flame, but it's also neither of those things. Right. It's just starting from the same like conceptual altitude of like what makes something a plastic anniversary song. Oh, it's made of plastic. What makes it Ultimate Care 2? Well, it's this object. But the formal expression of it, of like what how busy is it or how tense or how relaxed is it? Or is it sad or happy? Like all those kinds of choices, you sort of flow in the moment and go with your intuition and your ear about what you feel like doing. And you're not really forced to like live up to some record that people expect, you know, we're not the stones playing time is on my side. Right. Right. So you don't, you don't make like set lists, right? Is it improvisational? Yeah, we do. Okay. Well, when we do those. So, I mean, and that's that's another crazy difference between, you know, like you were saying, the regular a regular Matmus concert when you play in a different city every night. The easy presumption is that it's completely different set of people watching you every night. So they're in doing the same show every night where the it was really hard to even if it's true it's really hard to imagine that when you poop something out over the internet night after night that it's not going to be the same people watching Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might be your fans who are like, okay, I'll stay up late and I'll watch their other streaming concert. We don't want those people to see like, oh, they're just doing that oh, exact same it's a, it's piece. A, it's a rerun, you yeah, know? Yeah, like, that's, right. that's really disheartening. So I forget what you asked. Well, it I, just makes a lot of, that question. it makes a lot of work because touring and, and multiple streamings are just not really that comparable at the end of the day. Yeah. They're different models of relation I mean, I'm a, I've become a real homebody and I already was doing that before COVID started and the pandemic has only like reinforced my sort of weird hermit-like habits of mind. So, you know, as terrible as the pandemic obviously is, and I don't want to put some silver lining on catastrophe, but it does chime beautifully with like a part of me that always wanted to stay home and just make art, you know? 
Yeah. And that didn't really want to schlep a lot of gear, you know? So there is an upside to it, but the downside of it is, is more on the end of like labor of like, are we really expecting that every musician who's interesting has to be a self-sufficient TV producer in order to get heard now? Like that seems like an absurd, expensive hurdle that's not necessarily relevant to like being a good musician. You know, some people happen to have that in their toolbox. Yeah. I mean, I I sort of imagine have imagined for, Oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years now that I was a video artist. (laughs) um that has long rich laughter yeah that has not been (laughs) borne out by any gallery ever being interested in any of my video Uh, work or or what an irish film festival showed one a a couple places were like (laughs) showed one 15 minute piece but uh but this new this new tv show version of live music has given me the opportunity to uh at least sit in front of Final Cut Pro more than I would otherwise. Yeah. So is this though, is the way that you would perform now, is it similar to how you've always performed or has that changed? Well, in that Drew and I sit at a table with our computers and our gear and so on, it is, it is, and, and, you know, work, uh, it's a little like we're playing a battleship or mm. a little like we're yeah playing chess, but then a little bit like we're making a drawing together, a, a little bit like playing music. <laughs> I mean, it's closer <laughs> together. I feel like the audience gets to see what we're doing with more intimacy in certain ways. Yeah, you, I mean, the, cam- angles the camera is right on the table. So, you know, it's interesting that Bandcamp show that we played, like, I don't, I, I kind of love these people and I also find them slightly tiresome where they literally list every piece of gear that we're using. Right. And I switch things on my iPad and they're like, oh, there's the sampler. App. There's the sampler app. Oh, now he's using, you know, DHS stretcher. <laughs> oh, that's the TC-11. Yeah, and so on. <laughs> Gearhounds. And, and it's cool. And I am one of those people a little bit, but it's also like, can't you appreciate my my art? You know, like, is it really all about it's the, what, yeah. the technology? But, you know, I'm I'm into it. Like, Well, it's also kind of like the mystique has, has been removed a bit. A bit, you know, but the fact is, is that, you know, if even if you own a 1973 Fender Custom, uh, you still don't play like Jimi Hendrix. Right. You know, so the tools are tools, uh, and hopefully if they're good tools, they're extremely open-ended and different people will do very different things with them. Yeah. Well, because I, I, thinking about your discography, you know, you, you guys are sort of known for these sort of linking concepts in each album. Sometimes they're instruments, like you said, like the, the washing machine or plastic, uh, you know, objects, but other times they're just thematic. Um, so I was just wondering, that's why I asked that. I was just wondering if, if you guys have always sort of just like kind of let the, I don't know what the word is, let the music kind of happen in the moment versus trying to recreate something. Yeah, a sort of hybrid of the, of the two. 
Mm. It gives us the songs that we made or the pieces that wound up on the records give us a crutch, uh, you know, like when using the washing machine, when recording, when making the album, we sort of run, th- we not run through, but like work through all the possible different good sounds and things to you know sort of tricks to work with the washing machine that sound interesting like the repertoire of an object yeah and so making the the you know and sort of the record is a stringing a musical if you will stringing together of the different cool sounds that you can make with a washing machine. And so that sort of provides us a boiled down list of moves to make. And then there is a, a, I, you know, I get that there is a joy in an audience member who has listened to a record a bunch of times, like hearing like, oh, here's that part that I know. I mean, I'm, this is all hopeful, um, (laughs) hopefully. Uh, like, oh, there's there's this thing, and it's a little different this time because it's live, but you know, but not but not the same, but it's very much like that. Like in the case of the washing machine, we ended up liking the sequence of actions we did with the washing machine live better than what we had done with the record. Yeah, touring it kind of opened up new ways of organizing those sounds in a different way that felt more valid, but also just musically maybe more compelling. That sort of happened with um, with some of the the narrative of like Supreme Balloon, which when we toured live, took on a different order. It's just a different thing. It's just a different social contract with the audience. The question of like how you build and change is different. I mean, one thing I like about these streaming concerts, honestly, is that we create a lot of music that is sort of homeless because it's interstitial. It's sort of lost between albums where it isn't organized by a concept that really restricts what can be done. And so there's tons of stuff that's just Martin and I responding to each other in the moment that probably never winds up on a record because it doesn't belong within these frames where, you know, we're pretty busy like tying one hand behind our back when it's album time. So I think these these streaming concerts are useful because in a way it's a more pure expression of just like, well, what do we do when all we can work with is what's what's ready to hand, you know? Right. And and that, you know, you know how you, you know, character is who you are when nobody's watching. Maybe it's a different like character is who you are when you're streaming between albums <laughs> yeah it's like who you are when everyone's watching <laughs> <laughs> um and not to belabor um ultimate care too but i had the other question i had for that was um i remember uh i think i might have told told martin i don't or his uh or, or your manager i forget but i also work with anthony fantano and i remember him interviewing you and you guys were still in the like the conception stage of whether to bring the washing machine on stage Uh so i'm assuming you did oh yeah we did so so when you do something like that because this could apply to other things but when you do something like bring the washing machine on stage to play do you make like live samples that you edit on stage like how does how do you go about executing yeah it's it's a mix again it's a it's a sort of hybrid of okay 
of the two. Yeah, I literally have two laptops and one often has samples I've made in advance that are sequenced and the other is dedicated to just live sampling Martin and manipulating it. That was especially true for Plastic Anniversary. When we toured that record, we would do pieces where Martin would break a record by bread and contact mic it and pluck it and I would sample that and I would have all the MIDI, like the, the form of the song Breaking Bread, but no sounds. And I would sort of populate all the samplers live on the fly with sounds I had made in front of the audience because they can tell like from pitch, if they see Martin thwacking this piece of, of plastic and it makes a specific pitch, and then that becomes the kick drum, the link is very, very, very clear. So we like to make this live sampling. It's just the problem with a live sampling approach is like not every night are you going to get an awesome sound. Like some nights it's just kind of a doing and you left feeling a little <laughs> melancholy because it doesn't have the satisfying punch that something that's sort of quote unquote perfect might have, yeah. you know, but I think you need that openness. We would do the same with the crying pill where Martin would play the crying pill and I would sample it. I think in a pretty didactic way to like show the audience, look, we're sampling right now and, and you're with us here. You know, right. even to the point of getting like audience, because the audiences would yell and scream when we'd break the record. So it was fun to have their laughter or their response like folded directly into the music. Right. Um, yeah, it is kind of that like live wire sort of thing where you're sort of hoping the pieces lock into an interesting way. But yeah, sometimes sometimes they're not going to. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, our worst case of that was uh, when we tried to play the cow uterus live <laughs> and like we had, you know, used one for the, the studio recordings and it had been, they are not, not all cow uteruses that you buy from the FFA through the mail are the same. Yeah. Who would have known? It, who would? Yeah. Who would? I mean, I'm sure the people who teach Farmers how to young farmers cows. how to <laughs> artificially inseminate cattle probably know like they're all different you know you get them in Obviously. the mail and sometimes <laughs> so we were on stage trying to do this and in inflating a cow uterus with a vacuum cleaner um, you know we'd reverse the flow so it was blowing air but we there was like a rip in the uterus and it just kept leaking air and it wouldn't inflate so we couldn't squeeze it and make the satisfying noise. So yeah, yeah, there's a real downside to live sampling. Like sometimes you're just left holding a uterus and you know, you just look like an idiot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, kind of, it kind of reminds me um, a little bit of what uh, Bjork was doing for a short time with the React table. Uh-huh. Um, uh. I kind of, I remember that happening. I thought it was so cool. And then I feel like I never heard of it again. Um, yeah, we were, we were on the same festival bill with her when she was touring that uh, okay. that album. Would, and what was that? To, the medulla tour? Yeah. We got to okay. run out on stage and like watch Damien Taylor play the react table once. It was fun to see. It yeah, is really he, cool. I, yeah. He tried to teach me how to play it literally on stage. <laughs> and I was like, dude, <laughs> like, what are you doing? He was like, no, 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 no. Like yelling at me, yeah. like during yeah. the song. Well, I mean, it's like, I you know, like, you put the triangle here and you twist it and you do yeah. that. Yeah, I, it I, is. I it is basically, it is a simple, but you know, nothing, nothing is, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe hitting drums is that simple. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I respect people that bring their contraption, you know, whether it's Silver Apples or Quintron or whoever, you know, like things that are fragile and powerful, but also kind of, you know, cantankerous. Like, I think that's, that's the issue for a lot of modular synth people too. The time you spend tuning, 
I'd say for us, like the hurdy gurdy was a really cruel taskmaster. Like mm. we would tune it and everything would be great. And then they'd turn on the air conditioning and then the hurdy gurdy would go completely out of tune. And, you know, trying to like play it where you're like smiling at the audience, but you're, you're grinding this tone that's just unbelievably harsh. Um, yeah, it just, that's a part, that's part of the magic of live performance, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, so for those of who are maybe hopefully listening, who maybe are unaware, um, describe the consuming flame for us. Cause like I said, your concepts, or your albums usually do have some overriding concepts. So then how would you describe the consuming flame to someone who has no idea what it is? Well, um, the, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the 99 beats per minute as the sort of connective tissue. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how to make, I'm just trying to come up with how to, <laughs> how to make it into a, uh, so uh, living in Baltimore, there's a lot of small DIY sort of wretched uh, noise spaces. And occasionally someone asks me to play. Uh, and I don't mean Matmus, I mean me, me myself. Mm. And I don't like playing by myself. And I thought, oh, I'll ask my friends Tom and Jason to play with me. And they were like, uh, yeah, I can play that show, but I have no time to rehearse. And I thought, what can I tell them that when we get on stage together, I mean, we're all three of us are, you know, consider ourselves pretty good improvisers in the free improv sense. But mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted it to come to be more together than that. And I was like, what, what overriding principles can I give people to prepare before they come on stage that will cause us to look like we had practiced together right. <laughs> and they're both electronic musicians and i said okay so anything you prepare in advance make it at 99 bpm so when we play together and just start making sounds everything is more likely than not to lock together. Mm -hmm. uh, and also I said, try to make everything out of digital uh, speech, synthetic speech. Nobody did that <laughs> except me. Um, and sure enough, when we all came together on stage, it was cool what happened. And I was like, oh, this is a good, this is a cool idea. This is an idea with legs. Like, what if we asked more people to do that and make some songs with it or something? And then, you know, no matter who makes what, it's sort of like a, like a jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces all definitely fit together already, mm. as long as you don't count pitch or like a lego brick system where it's all the same width of brick so everything can stack on top yeah, or of everything I, actually legos is a great metaphor for it like everybody makes a bunch of music but they all have these common parts that fit together namely the tempo and so i sort of came you know i was like how about this as that drew and i take turns being in charge of whose idea is going to be the guiding 
principle for the for our next album and mm -hmm. it was my turn and i said what do you think about this idea he was like perfect as long as we ask 99 people <laughs> um and i was like oh it's gonna be long and he was yeah, like i mean no. it is it is your longest album correct it's, yes it's, by, yeah, by, yeah. by a mile i would think <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I, gen, I have a sort of a general philosophy that no one wants to hear anybody for more than about 40 minutes, mm -hmm. um, whether it's live or on a record, you know, 40 minutes tops even. But, you know, people do l listen to operas and Martin Feldman sim quartet. symphonies and, you know, stuff. So, well, whatever. Um but in a way, it's not one person because it's not one person for 40 minutes. It's not like a right. jam deck spoken word album. It's like it's a, 99 like, people for 99 three hours. People. So, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't have that sort of ego problem that I would think, oh, my solo album is three hours long. You know, um, is this the first time you guys have actually built an album mostly out of other people's contributions? I mean, we've had some records that have a ton of well, unless, you, unless you count Bjork. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> i mean like there were a lot of people on the west for example and there were a lot of people on the civil war but this is definitely a whole other level mm -hmm. and i think yeah the sort of amount of of transformation is so variable there's some people whose submissions got heavily reconstructed and manipulated and some people where they just kind of get paired up with someone else and those two do a duet for a while and neither mm -hmm. martin nor i are present you know it's um yeah, pretty late in the process of creating the record, I proposed the group forms, you know, sort of subtitle as a way to explain what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's from this this uh, person, Chris Cohen, wrote a book called Never Alone Except for Now, Art, Networks, Populations, which is about digital forms. And Chris Cohen proposes this phrase, group form, for something that emerges socially as a result of lots of people contributing, but nobody is necessarily all that much in charge of it. Like it doesn't necessarily have an author or like authorship is like distributed across a lot of people. Hmm. And I think that kind of distributed agency feeling is what the consuming flame has. Like it doesn't sound like a Martin record or a Drew record. And it also doesn't sound like a Yolo Tango record or a one Oh tricks point never record. You know, it's got so many different kinds of voices and I guess I think of it more like the sort of waterfall or cascade of a Twitter feed, you know, that it's it's this polyglot thing that just keeps going and different people keep getting, unlike an interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, was anyone particularly surprising that they that they submitted something to this? You mean you mean were like that we said yes yes were you surprised? Oh, that they said yes. I don't know. We're pretty yeah. pushy. It's like, don't ask, don't get, you know? <laughs> we didn't, um, I don't know. I don't, you know, we didn't ask anyone. We didn't ask anyone we didn't already kind of know. Okay. Well, no, that's not true. I, I approached DeForest Brown Jr. and I didn't know him at all. Just, oh, okay. I followed him on Twitter. Okay, there's, maybe I didn't. Yeah, there's, there's people that that I only, like, I liked their records and I liked who what they were about. And so I just wrote them. Um, so I did a lot more of that sort of street team, like, you know, or like, you know, love letter. And sometimes it's unrequited love. Like, you don't hear back from everybody. 
Yeah. Some people are kind of busy. Some people you got to kind of wrangle. Other folks were like super into it and, and, and have done sort of file exchanges like, oh, will you send me something for my records? You know, um, like we've sent some things that are for Rabbit, you know, and Rabbit sent us some stuff for our record. Um, so it's been interesting. You know, there's some people like Wobbly and people like us where we've known them for decades and we've made records together many times. Uh, and then there's other people where it was quite a, a tenuous link, you know, like some people that I just know through the internet, like the writer Colin Dickey, you know, um, I've never met him in person. I didn't even know if he made audio, but I liked what he contributed, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, I mean, like anything with 99 people, it's complicated. Yeah. I was certainly... I mean, I've always been surprised, like, the, uh, like every member of Yola Tango, there's, oh, anytime we ever play in New York, there is a member of Yola Tango there, <laughs> and it surprises me every time. Like that Why, because they, there's, there's such a wildly, like, different sound world that they yeah. come from? Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah they're, exactly, they're, and they think we are just but they're cool. hilarious. They're cool, <laughs> and, like, we go see them when they play in Baltimore, like, you know, we're we're not musically all that overlapping, but there are points of overlap, you know, and there's mm -hmm. a sort of ethos, like of a certain like fidelity to your vision kind of thing. It's hard to put my finger on it with, you know, like obviously there's a couple in both bands, but I don't think it's just that. Cause like James, you know, at, at any rate, without sort of getting into a Yola Tango detour here, <laughs> um, there's just a lot of different people whose art we respect. And it's pretty, the relation is different in every case. You know, like I used to listen to Fetus records in high school. I never thought I'd have J.G. Thirlwell on a Matmus record. That's totally amazing. And then there's people from the noise scene like Idem Theftable or Mothcock where, you know, to me, they're just such incredible live performers. And I don't, didn't really have a reason to assume they'd be positive or negative about contributing to Matmus and maybe the average Matmus fan doesn't really know who Idem Theftable is but I feel like they should they should because he's amazing you know mm. so yeah so it was this sort of curatorial effort um maybe maybe a little more so than than some recent projects of yours Yes. Yeah, and there's there's also <laughs> people where like we know them socially and we like them a lot and we like their art but I didn't feel like forcing them to play to a tempo to lock on would make a lot of sense. You know, like William Bozinski, love mm. that guy, but I don't feel like a, a loop of a few seconds of William Bozinski on top of a million other things is a meaningful, like Matmus and William Bozinski collaboration. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, not everybody needs to be folded into everything. And being on this list of 99 people doesn't mean like, these are the people we love the most in the entire world. You know, oh Lord far, God, far there's from it. so yeah. many people <laughs> in, in the in the uh, subsequent months that I've been like, oh, why didn't we ask blah? <laughs> why didn't we ask blah? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, do you know? Do you know who this? My, I think my biggest regret. Do you know who this guy Richie Divine is? I feel like I've heard the name, but I don't. He's sort of ultimate intense programmer, knows gear in a way that pretty much nobody else on earth does. Yeah, like, he's kind of a rock, rock star of, of reviewing audio 
okay. audio, like digital audio products and analog, uh, like uh, modular synth things. But also software. And he makes like hyper intricate, you know, post IDM music. And we've known him since he was kind of a kid. And I think he's a really interesting music. St- like he is a new kind of celebrity. Mm-hmm like that just didn't exist before that there's no sort of uh, analog for yeah we totally should have asked him and a lot of other folks and and yeah and we've known i don't know if i said it but we've known him since he was kind of a kid and he's become this like sort of legend in uh of a of a sort I, i think he's really cool yeah. Or like, you know, Zena Parkins, we've known her forever. We've toured with her. She's played on Madness Records, but she's super busy and on tour a lot. And like, we, we didn't just even didn't, ask. We, we didn't even forgot to ask. ask. We're just, yeah. yeah. So it is kind of weird. It's not like this list is like the sort of be all end all of our aesthetic or like right. where we could take our vision. I mean, that's part of what's weird is like, we can make a, we can make five more consuming flames. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would imagine so. I mean, not only did you probably have material you didn't end up using, but you could reassemble it in a different way and it'll sound totally different. Yep. Yeah. Which Absolutely. I assume, which actually is sort of kind of what you just said you're almost doing in the live setting. Yes. Yeah. yeah the so there you are, go. The streams are the, the next mutation. Right. Um, so it's only been though, a year about since plastic anniversary that's a quicker turnaround for you guys than usual was it sort of a happy accident that the consuming flame happened or were you it's, always planning it? it's martin martin's on fire no i wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted to make a i wanted to make another i i did it frustrates me how long we take in between mm-hmm. because the fact is is that we we actually work pretty fast uh when we work and we have a, I mean, this is more personal than, than is maybe interesting. Like we, we hem and haw and sort of worry about things for, for, for the, for the worth of several albums in between albums when yeah. we could just be fucking cranking out another album right <laughs> i mean for as far me, as i'm concerned <laughs> it's very different for me i look at it differently because i'm a i'm an english professor i i teach shakespeare at johns hopkins and i took five years to make the marriage of true minds because that was when i was up for tenure so i was finishing turning my book into a dissertation well that one made sense and you know there's just things that if you're going to really be an academic in a field it demands so much labor that if you're doing music as a hobby in your spare time, but you have high standards and you don't want to waste anybody's time with a record. Like I do have a real feeling of like, I don't want to lose the people that have stayed with us for decades. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to take for granted the like, yeah, we'll just make another, we'll just make another, like as if there's an endless demand. Like I think when you've been doing something for 25 years, you probably do have a core set of hardcore people that are really curious about whatever you do next but you really don't want to take that for granted, you know? Yeah, no, and, totally. I mean, that's why I've been honestly quite moved that I feel like we have had so much support for what we did with Ultimate Care 2 and Plastic Anniversary and even people being willing to go with us with Consuming Flame, which frankly, I was pretty worried about because it is demanding. See, he, you know, he, see, so we have what, different- What you're saying, Drew, is like, 
because it was faster, it must be worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the error that I think we make is unless we take a long time, it won't be good. But we waste all this time just worrying about things. I I don't, you know, you look, you look at like the catalogs of bands from the 70s. And, and you realize like, holy crap, this band, this band made like five albums in two years. Yeah, totally. And that's, yeah, I think when people are completely focused, when they're inspired and when they have a practice that lets them do that, I think it just varies wildly from, uh, from album to album for us, to be quite honest. Like, to me, the reason that some records go fast, like Ultimate Care 2 went really fast because we were absolutely focused. Most of the questions of like, what objects should we use and what does it take to acquire them were solved immediately from the beginning. Right. It's just this washing machine you do. It's going it's just this goddamn yeah, washing it's machine. Like, you know, <laughs> we, didn't, like, we didn't spend a lot of time wondering what sound we were gonna make. Yeah. Because the washing machine sound. Be, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Whereas like, you know, look at a record like, you know, Van Dyke Park's Discover America, where it's like he's gotta go to Trinidad and like work with Trinidadian musicians and like then do the strings and you know, like some people's vision is incredibly elaborate and it takes the time to get it right. Whereas somebody who's really kind of more minimalist in, in their orientation, like just naturally it's gotta be faster. Um, well, you also don't want to, you also don't want to burn out. Um, you know, I think of, and not necessarily that they've burned out, but when you were just talking, it made me think of bands like the fiery furnaces mm-hmm. who put out like 20 years worth of music in like six years and then have we haven't heard from them you know right um, and i don't i do not begrudge them that because of so uh-huh. much work that they put in and i know that independently the two of them have put out solo music but you yeah you don't want to just like grind your gears so fast to keep putting it out and then be done you know unless you yeah. want to be done i guess yeah i mean martin and i have a couple album projects and on the table right now and just figuring out what counts as like an official one or like what is like a project, but maybe not an album. And, you Mm -hmm. know, that sort of moving target too of deciding like, well, when is it strong enough that it can hold up against other things? I mean, I feel in some ways like consuming flame is notionally a Matmus album, but it's kind of in its own lane, you know, like so much of it was made by other people that to me, it feels like there was a sort of, um, like we had to sort of host and kind of conduct or I don't know what the metaphor would be. Well, it's like you're a museum curator almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a group or an art show. gallery curator. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if art gallery curators did to these people's artworks, <laughs> what, what we did, Oh boy. People would well, be, yeah, but people the, would be this, really bad. But in this metaphor, the artists are giving you their art with full understanding. I yeah, hope exactly. that that's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, know. it's, in, uh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously Drew and I just have different feelings about it. When I, when I, when I look at the sort of core music that, you know, you know, like so many people like that I listened to when I was a weed smoking 18 year old, that means the world to me, <laughs> uh, you know, for better or worse. What I really loved 
was not the main albums by people, but their weird side projects. Mm-hmm. Like I think there's a there's a record by uh, the guitarist from U2 and Holger Jukai and uh, who the bass player from Can is Holger Jukai. Oh, okay, and. Uh, God, who what and David Sylvian, maybe like just this, like, and it, you know, didn't get a huge release and it didn't get pushed really hard. And then like the albums that are with Cluster and Brian Eno, that like labels kind of didn't know what to do with. And and like they're sort of like those were the things I loved, and that's what sort of is the behind in the back of my mind when I'm like a hurried weird thing is not necessarily is maybe even better than something you take really seriously as your main gig or like a david byrne uh the knee plays there's there's this fucking weird little record he made that was supposed to be the soundtrack for a robert wilson opera that never happened. Oh. Uh, that was for the 1984 LA Olympics that Robert Wilson got so completely out of control with that the Olympics were like, we're not doing this. Never mind. <laughs> and it was this the gigantic concept. And and you know, one tiny part of it was David Byrne writing these, and then like uh, David Byrne, also big hero of mine. Um, made music for Twyla Tharp dance pieces. Oh, the Catherine wheel, the Catherine wheel. And mm-hmm. those are all like so, some of my favorite, most treasured recordings. And so I th- in the back of my mind, I'm like trying to recreate this like occasional music. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you, if you don't belabor something for years, like some people do, and you just kind of make it, um, you kind of avoid innately, you kind of avoid the risk of belaboring it and you kind of just let it come out. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Bur- it's not sort of burdensome in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's part of the problem is like, how do we talk about creativity and timing without becoming hostages to capitalism and the album rollout and the hype cycle? Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not here to be a reliable delivery system of products. I'm here to like share art when I think it's worth somebody's time. And I, I like not being pretentious and not taking oneself too seriously, but I also don't like the sort of self-indulgence of like, Oh, I'm just going to be a running faucet of stuff because I can, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not appealing to me. Um, So I want to, before we go, I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, Bjork because um, Mostly because one of the ways I even found out about you guys was through Bjork. Um, when I bless started, her heart. When I first started getting into her, um, you know, however many years ago, and one of the videos that I watch routinely is her Vespertine concert, uh-huh. um, which you guys are in. Um, so, how did you even link up with her? What, what were you were on the Vespertine album, correct? Yeah, yeah. The, so, it's sort of the way it started was was um, through a remix, and and before that through a record store. Um, so we put out our first albums ourselves on our own label, Vague Terrain, 
And, you know, it was like vanity label where we were pressing a thousand copies and 10 copies of our second album, Quasi Objects, got sent to uh, Rough Trade in London and Bjork bought one. Mm. And she really liked that record, like to the point that she was then playing it for people in London, like Matthew Herbert, you know, who emailed me like, hey, oh, Bjork sure. played, played me your record, you know. So Bjork did an incredible job of honestly, like kind of evangelizing for us before we were collaborating with her, right? Mm -hmm. When it was just like, she just thought our record was cool. Um, and so she called us up and asked us if we'd be interested in doing a remix. And I think something that was smart about that was that she said, well, why don't you make two? And then you can do whatever you want, you know, and there's less pressure, I think, because if you make a couple, it's like you get to try out different ideas. So we worked, I like, I worked really, really hard on those remixes. Um, I was not even there. Martin was in LA or something. Like, <laughs> I think I pretty much did it all. So I worked my ass off on those and she really liked them a lot. Like she called back and was like, I'm flabbergasted, um, <laughs> you know? And so we just, we started to be in touch with her because of that remix. And we hung out some in LA. We went to the um, Dancer in the Dark premiere with her. Oh, cool. Um, and that was weird because she was like, look, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Like, I don't live like this. It's not like movie stars all the time, you know, cause we were literally like sitting there at the party with like Catherine Deneuve and Bjork. Oh, that, that was, was that like the, the con premiere? No, this was in, no, LA. in LA. Oh, okay. Was, okay. Like the yeah. director's guild. <laughs> yeah. Don't okay, you know, okay. you know, so Schwadi dog. like, you know, she, <laughs> we were just like hanging out, but it was like pretty weird, you know, mm. it's a, just another level when things are attached to to uh you know certain kinds of scales of operation anyway yeah so she came backstage to see us when we were on tour with uh rachel's we played um a halloween show at the knitting factory and and she brought up like hey would you like to do some more collaboration i'm working on a new record um and it was a you know it was an offer that was incredibly exciting it was quite daunting honestly because you know, Martin and I had our own way of working and it was a workaround based on our limitations and who we were. And I was frankly pretty scared about it, but Bjork was just a very smart like collaborator and someone that I think already had, I mean, she already had Vespertine very much yeah, it was, figured out. It was like well, yeah, yeah, like, like percent. I, finished like, well that was one of the things about that album that uh -huh. you know was sort of that kind of when it came back into the conversation a few years ago and she was like talking about how no one ever gave her credit for that but she actually did so much of the the micro production and the beats mm. and that's and, absolutely um, true yeah and i really appreciated that article that she um spoke about that for and that you guys were mm -hmm. open openly basically you know agreeing with her like look that is what happened yeah you know we were misquoted and miscredited constantly as producers of the record we did not produce that record yeah and you know we contributed to it but so did a lot of people and those people, none of them are responsible for the music. Like Bjork was the one that assembled it all. And, you know, she would have like 10 or 12 elements from other people, but she would edit and chop and decide what to use. And she had already worked out in her mind, like the kind of sound and the melodies. And yeah, it was just very much, that album is very much a distillation of Bjork's mind and the way that her musical mind works. You know, we were honored to be involved um sort of spooked uh, <laughs> but yeah i think it is a little 
just painfully obvious in hindsight how much sexism frames a woman who sings as if she's just someone who gets carried away by emotions. And then if people see like guys next to a computer on stage, they think, oh, that the, they must be in charge. But like often yeah. we were kind of just adding like weird layers of hi-hats and snares. <laughs> we barely knew what we were doing. Yeah. Well, that like, was so early in your, in your, you know, career too. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had just made, I guess we had made um, quasi objects and we were in the middle of making the West and things kind of, uh, you know, started to develop. And then also, I mean, with, with Vespertine, like Bjork delayed the rollout for about an extra six months uh, and changed the timing of when we were going to tour the record. And that actually was a huge godsend because it gave us a lot more time to work with her on programming new arrangements of her older songs to kind mm. of fit the Vespertine sound world. Yeah. So we we sort of weirdly lucked out as far as the way she decided to do it because we had a lot more time to kind of learn how to be a part of her band. I mean, you know, I have regrets and I have to say like, I think I wasn't as good of a listener as I should have been at times with Bjork, I feel like she was saying something and I wasn't really picking up on it. You know, mm-hmm. I have my own regrets about maybe just being like a typical, like electronic music boy who just lives inside his own little screen. Like, I think I wasn't as sensitive at times uh, to her as I should have been about suggestions that she had or ideas that she had. And I think in a, in a sort of micro way, it was playing out a kind of gender dynamic that's really, really typical, you know, and that's yeah. just on me. I mean, I, I, I was kind of dumb, you know, I mean, but she's you just, you know what, Drew, yeah. you do it with me. <laughs> I don't think it's about sex. I think it's you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so. Maybe I'm, just, I'm just a, I'm just a dumb piece of shit sometimes. Oh, um, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like honestly, um, you know, we're, we're, forever grateful to Bjork for advocating for us and for giving us this opportunity and for just kind of showing us all of these possibilities of like how you can make music and what you can do. Like I definitely hear in Matmus records a kind of before and after Bjork where Mm -hmm. I think we're a lot more ambitious now than we would have been. But I also like, I don't know how to run the simulations of like, what would my life be like if Bjork hadn't taken an interest in Matmus? Like, Right. I predict very, very different, you know, so thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, people, you know, people forget even still um, how intelligent of a programmer and like sound constructor she is and curator that she is, because like even with recent albums like Volnikira, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, who was it? Arca that, that helped her a lot with that one. And, and, um, and, and I think some, not one of point never. I can't remember, but um, oh uh, yeah, rabbits on that one a little bit. I think. Okay, I mean, okay. yeah, like I. I, would I was say, just gonna. I was just. I was just gonna say that I think even still, people will look at an album like Volnikura and be like, "Oh, well, the reason it sounds like that is because of Arca," and it's not really totally the case, and it wasn't with Vespertine either. No, she she hears in her head forms that are absolutely her. You know, I watched her like write a baseline once, and I heard her play it just as a baseline and it sounded so strange and so weird to me. And then I heard it overlaid onto the rest of the vocal melody and the rhythm and it just absolutely made sense. Yeah, we both went, 
Oh. And that's when, we, when that's when the penny dropped of like, oh wow, she's really a genius. And like, there's yeah. really this extra level as a composer there that's entirely her and it's her own thing. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. I think that when you collaborate with Bjork, there's this expectation that your target is necessarily this sort of legible pop gesture, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like she can take her aesthetic in a lot of different places, you know? So like if, if there's a track that, that's like Bjork and Arca and Rosalia on Arca's album, that doesn't mean that therefore they were gunning for a big pop hit, you know? Yeah. But I think people bring this yardstick of expectations to bear and it kind of says more about them than it does about the artists, you know? Right. I think yeah. that's like, there's just a lot of baggage about scale um, that it it's not her problem, but it's like the way people talk about certain kinds of art is it's more about some sort of celebrity quest for relevance than like just like the formal things or the emotional things which are the true targets of like why you make art or why you care about art which of course is you know at the end of the day capital you know it's like capital do you make money out of it (laughs) yeah no if yes then legitimate art Right. If no, then your art clearly doesn't matter very much. You know, like it's like talking to your uncle, the plastic salesman that uh, at Christmas. You're like, mm-hmm. so are you making money on it? Yeah, no, I've I've been in those scenarios. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> are you winning, son? And, and well, yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like when I started going to college and I was I was a film major, and there everyone was like, well, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> right. Yeah, as if that's the only question worth answering. Right. right. Um, and then so Bjork also, I guess, returned the favor and was on um, The Rose Has Teeth for you guys. Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, that was like, I had been harvesting her voice as a source for Vespertine and had her say a bunch of sentences. And one of the sentences I had her say was that Wittgenstein quote, because I've been obsessed with it for years. You know, so that was honestly a like, oh, I happen to have this, let's use it. Yeah, yeah. we kind of know. I mean, we always intended to like do something else with her and it just kind of never the the stuff that like we just never stop doodling and recording and going like oh oh what if we you know and like just build up a big archive of yeah and we just had a bunch of like i still have all these recordings of her that i have no idea why we made (laughs) them of her saying all these weird words yeah whistles thistles yeah whistles thistles (laughs) and occasionally i listen to it you know, because it's this beautiful sound file, and I'm like, "Well, what am I gonna do with that?" You yeah, should just you should just send them to her and like yeah. no context and see Let what her she do says. It. I mean, we have cassettes <laughs> of us with like Terry Riley playing piano, and we're sampling him, and you know, they're just like fragments of a life of collaborating with different people. But I am sensitive that I'm not gonna just slap Bjork's name on some product in order to sell more copies in a disrespectful way. Yeah. Like that's not cool and that's not cool to her. So there's almost like a sort of, you know, there's a certain awareness of like, be mindful of how you use collaborations and how you don't, you know? Totally. Are Are you guys like still in touch with her? I haven't seen her since, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, given the whole like COVID situation, sure, it's yeah. like, you know, everything's sort of modulated. I saw her in, in New York the last time, uh, a social event, mm. you know, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to say too much. 
no, but no. there's like chit chat that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, holding out hope selfishly that maybe someday you two will join forces again. Um, Who knows? That would be fun. It would be fun. Yeah. It would be, fun. It would be very fun for us too. I think Best Routine is, is a masterpiece and I'm, I'm glad that you guys had a hand in it. Yeah. It was, yeah, it we was, were... it was our pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Certainly. All right. Well, on a serious note, actually, thank you um, for joining me today. It was a real pleasure getting to talk to you guys. Um, I'm so glad you agreed to talk to me today. Well, thanks for having us. Sorry we missed that last chance, but oh, you know, no, it seems it's like uh, we got to build up more of a head of steam here. Oh, yeah. No, I came in with double the anticipation. <laughs> cool. Well, if you have second thoughts or qu other questions, you know, let us know. We can answer them. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to listen back to this and scrap the whole thing. So <laughs> the spirit of the staircase. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys so much. Um, Cheers. I hope you have a, a good rest of your afternoon. And, okay. Uh, too. Party and, on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Take care. Thank you so much. Be of well. course. Bye. 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 Bye.